We are back in the 13 realms. In this episode, we have a technical genius. We have Danny, aka GM Doey, from the KOD project. And you would think that someone technical isn't creative, but when you listen to his story, you can see just how creative you can be when it comes to technicality. But first, we have to continue the legend of the kingdom with this next chapter. Chapter 5. Embers Smoke rose lazily from the charred remains of what had once been the Goblin's Head Tavern. It drifted skyward, mingling with the smoke from the hundreds of other burnt-out husks that Grog had passed on his miserable walk through the broken town of Longdale. Grog's impulse to drown his sorrows in ale was so overwhelming that he momentarily considered trying to force his way through the blackened beams and rubble to reach the cellar. As he shuffled forward, however, it became clear that there was still far too much heat radiating from the piles of glowing ash for him to attempt that shameful task, at least for now. So he stood on the road, staring balefully at the debris, not caring when smoke wafted into his eyes and filled them with stinging tears. The goblin's head had been Grog's second home for more than a year. It had been his refuge and his escape from the torment of his own mind. Now it was gone, taken from him by the same bastard evil dwarves who'd caused the torment in the first place. The same bastard evil dwarves who'd taken everything from him. I need a drink, Grog said to the cinders of the dead pub. Then he turned and continued on towards his home. Between all the dregs and all the bottles scattered around his little shack, surely there'd be enough ale to take the edge off. Maybe he even had a couple of unopened bottles left. A dwarf could hope. As Grog trudged through the eerily quiet streets, he felt the throbbing in his skull gaining strength, and a sting returning to his injured right buttock. The Nissan weed was beginning to wear off. He quickened his pace. A surge of relief flooded through Grog as he approached the narrow dirt path that led from the edge of town to his shack and saw the top of his chimney. There'd been a very real possibility that his house, like so many others, had been burned to the ground. But apparently, the invading dwarves hadn't made it this far, or simply hadn't bothered to put the torch to such a squalid hovel. As Grog made his way along the path, however, and drew closer to his little home, the feeling of relief was swiftly replaced with a blend of anger, confusion, and trepidation. A large ram with a fine leather saddle was tied by a rope to Grog's fence, and an exceptionally strange-looking dwarf, who Grog assumed was the beast's rider, was standing in Grog's front garden. Grog approached cautiously 
unable to decide what he found most bizarre about his unwelcome guest. The dwarf's face was covered in white full-moon war paint, and he had an angry scar over his left eye. He was clearly a warrior of great renown, but instead of armor and a helm, he wore a simple brown woolen shirt and a floppy burgundy cap. He would have looked almost comical, were it not for the horrific weapons strapped to his back. Grug had spent nearly forty years in the army. He'd been stabbed, whacked, sliced, and clobbered with pretty much every weapon imaginable. But he'd never seen anything like the grotesque clubs this dwarf carried. They were fashioned almost entirely from the bones of male mountain goats. The head of each club was a blood-spattered skull, complete with protruding teeth, gaping eye sockets, and a pair of rock-hard horns. The whole mess was held together with strips of leather and iron clamps. They were horrible. Grog really wanted one. To top off this peculiar scene, Grog's visitor had an extremely large rock in his hand, which he was repeatedly lifting over his head with raucous grunts of exertion. The strange dwarf watched Grog as he approached, but gave no indication that he was going to stop his exercise session until Grog had almost reached the place where his front gate had once been. At that point, the white-faced dwarf hurled the rock to the side, where it crushed a small patch of weeds and the remains of what might have once been a wooden bucket. The dwarf said, rolling his shoulders, Oh, I'm terribly sorry, Grug said, splaying a dramatic hand across his chest. So rude of me to keep you waiting. It's just that I didn't know there was going to be a scar-faced, goat-club-wielding lunatic lifting rocks in my front garden. If I'd known, I'd have rushed home sooner. The dwarf grinned. You always were a funny bastard, General. The word General sent a shiver running across Grog's shoulders. He took a few steps closer to the strange dwarf. You know me? The dwarf's smile widened. Course I know ye. Grog leaned forward and squinted, taking in every detail of his visitor's face, from the scarred milky left eye to the strands of grey in his dark, wiry beard. Well, I'm sorry, chum, he said eventually, throwing up his hands. But I dunna know ye. The dwarf chuckled. <laughs> I've changed a little. The last time you saw me, I didn't have this, he pointed at his scar. Or this, he gestured at his white face. Or these, he reached back and patted the ram's skull. The last time you saw me, we'd just finished dealing with a pretty insane Afonk invasion in Realm 7. Images of fighting demonic horned water creatures flitted across Grog's memory. After we'd driven them off, the dwarf continued, we all got drunk and some dwarves decided to swim naked across the Oglan River. 
Do you remember? Grog nodded. I remember it was unbelievably foolish. A couple of dwarves nearly drowned. <laughs> Including me. The dwarf laughed, as though the memory of his near-death experience was particularly hilarious. But it was you that challenged the troops to do it. Maybe, said Grug, who was too busy staring intently at the dwarf's face to argue. Wait. The dwarf raised his white, painted eyebrows expectantly. Leatherbasher, Grug said, pointing a triumphant finger right at the delighted dwarf's nose. Sergeant Thetham Leatherbasher. Ask me, sir. Although I'm no longer a sergeant, Thetham puffed out his chest. I'm now a full moon, as you can see, and personal bodyguard to King Gelgrim Brewblade of the Second Realm. Oh, shit. Grog's shoulders slumped. That's why you're here, to try and get me to go and talk with a bloody king? No, sir, not try. I will be taking you back with me. There was no threat or anger in Thetham's voice. He spoke as though merely stating a fact. Grog analyzed Thetham's smiling face, weighed up his options, and chose beer. All right, fine, I'll go with you. Just let me get a few things first, okay? He inclined his bandaged head towards his house. Thetham gave Grog a suspicious look, but moved out of his way. As soon as he was inside, Grog started inspecting the bottles strewn around his house. These things you've got to get, Thetham said, leaning casually against the doorframe and watching Grog's increasingly frantic search. You keep them in ale bottles, do you? Grog didn't answer. None of the bottles on the tables or benches had yielded more than a mouthful, and a search of his few cupboards was proving completely fruitless. After a while, Thetham cleared his throat. <clears throat> General, I didn't know if you're aware, but the latest reports seem to indicate that the whole of the Thirteen Realms is under attack. With all due respect, we need to go now. The king is waiting. Thetham? Grog said, ripping items of ragged clothing out of a dusty chest and throwing them over his shoulder. I'm not a general anymore, and with all due respect, the king can go fuck himself. I'm not going anywhere. A loud thud from behind Grug caused him to pause his desperate search and turn around. Thetham had unslung one of the billy clubs from the holster at his back and allowed its blood-stained head to fall to the floor. He was no longer smiling. Grug, you were the best leader I ever served under, Thetham said. I've got a lot of respect for you, and ancient ones know what a hard time you must have had since the Battle of Algon's Pass. But if you didn't come with me now, I'm going to have to knock you out and sling you over the back of my mount like a sack of potatoes. Grug considered getting angry, but found that he just didn't have it in him. The Neeson weed had made him drowsy, but was now barely taking the edge off his terrible headache. He was also seriously nauseous, and his hands were shaking like branches in a storm. You'd 
really clobber me with that thing? Grug said, sitting down on the floor and pointing an unsteady finger at Thetham's extraordinary weapons. Can't you see I've just had my head split open? I really don't want to, Thetham said, but my vows to the king are unbreakable. If I'm commanded to bring you to him, he shrugged, I have to bring you to him. But what for? Grug protested. I'm fat, old, tired and useless. I've got a cut across my arse cheeks as long as a donkey's dick. And my head feels like it's about to cave in. What can I do? It's not up to me to make that look, Grug interrupted, holding out his badly quivering hands for Thetham to see. What can I do? Well, both the king and Bruton Gruntlog seemed to think, Bruton! Grug cut across Thetham again. I swear, that bastard saved my life just to torment me. Why in the endless pit of darkness do they think I can help anyone? Look at the state of me. Thetham did look. He considered Grug for a long moment. Then he rested his club against the wall. Wait there, he said. Then he turned and walked out of the house. Grug was up on his feet and tiptoeing towards Thetham's weapon in an instant. He heard the deep bleating of the ram outside as he wrapped his trembling hands around the bone handle. By the time Thetham appeared back at the doorway, Grug had retreated into his shack and was standing with his feet set. Thetham's white face broke into a bemused smile. Really? I'm not going. But I just went and grabbed this for you. Thetham held up a metal flask. I'll trade it for that. He pointed at the club with his other hand. Grug licked his lips. What is it? This. Thetham gave the flask a little shake. His smolder whiskey tapped from the king's personal toasted oak barrels. Deal. Grug marched across the room without a moment's hesitation and offered the club to Thetham. Thetham took it and handed over the flask. Grug unscrewed the lid and took an investigative sniff. No trick had been played. The vapors that rose from the flask were so strong that Grog felt like several of his nose hairs had been singed off. He raised the flask to his lips and scowled. After a few searing gulps, he lowered his head, closed his eyes, and, as the burning liquid poured into his stomach, he let out a shuddering sigh, which was part relief and part pain. When he opened his eyes again, he was overwhelmed by a wave of shame. Thanks, he muttered, staring down at the floor. Then he raised the flask and drank again. I think this'll be good for you, Thetham said, once Grog had sucked the last few drops from the flask and was screwing the lid back on. Grog nodded and gave a grunt of affirmation. He wasn't ready to speak yet. His mouth and throat were too busy being on fire. I don't mean the whiskey, 
Thetham reached out and took the empty flask from Grog. I mean this. Coming with me, saving the kingdom, getting away from... He trailed off and gestured vaguely around Grog's ramshackle hovel. It'll be good to be doing something worthwhile. I do. I do worthwhile things. Grog slurred, struggling to make his numb tongue move as intended. Like what? Like I go to that pub, which is burned down. But I also do things around the house, and just loads of stuff. You make a strong point, Thetham said gravely. I can see why your choice between staying here or coming with me to help serve your kingdom in a time of desperate need is a difficult one. I'm too sick, Grog said. I'm too tired and sore. I'm too badly injured. I'm not a warrior anymore, Thetham. I'm certainly not a general. I don't think they want you to be, Thetham said. I'm not even sure they want you to fight. The king and Broughton were talking about you being one of the only dwarves who knows how to find the Faithbound. I think they want you to guide a group into the mountains. Oh, is that all? Grug actually staggered backwards at the absurdness of Thetham's statement. Uh, possibly because the smolder whiskey was hitting him like a heated iron sledgehammer. Well, why didn't you say? If all they want me to do is lead a group to the absolute peaks of the most treacherous, beast-infested, freezing, fucking awful mountains on the face of Eridas, well, that's no problem. I'm sensing a little sarcasm, Grog. Sarcasm? Oh, ancient ones forbid. No, 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 no. This is enthusiasm. I love visiting the Faithbound. They're a wonderful bunch of dwarves, and not at all the cult of fanatical, humorless, psycho-nutters that everyone makes them out to be. Well, I'm glad you're so excited. Right, let's get moving. Grog jabbed a single thick finger out towards Thetham. Give me one good reason. Why I should. I'll give you two, Thetham said. The first is that back at the Burgomaster's Manor, where the king is staying, there is a vast quantity of fine whiskey and also some very potent Nissan weed. Thetham held up his gruesome hammer and pointed to its head. The second is that... Forget the second reason! Grog waved Thetham's imminent threat off like he was swatting at a fly. Stop wasting time with your chatter, let's go! Thetham grinned as Grog lurched unsteadily towards his front door. But his grin fell away as Grog suddenly stopped and frowned, his eyes narrowing in deep and serious thought. Oh, come on, Grog, no more bullshit. One second... Grug retreated back to his clothes chest and began flinging clothes over his shoulder again. You don't need to dig around for some secret stash of flat old ale, Grug. Fethan yelled. We've got that covered, okay? 
Grug grabbed a final tattered shirt from the bottom of the chest and surrendered a loud sigh as he gazed at what lay beneath it. Remember this, Lethan? he asked as he reverently lifted his most prized possession out of the chest. I sold my axe, my shield, my helm, even my boots. But this... He held up a blackened steel chainmail shirt. This was crafted by the finest armorsmiths in all the Thirteen Realms, and given to me by High King Owen himself. <laughs> I saved my life so many times, I just couldn't part with it. Blade Blunter, Thetham said, with a touch of awe in his voice. That's what it's called, isn't it? Aye, lad, that's what it's called. Grog nodded somebody as he ran his eyes over the perfect interlocking rings. Now, he looked around his house and instantly decided that there wasn't a single other thing worth taking. Let's get out of this shithole and go see the king, shall we? Wow, wow, wow. We are back in the realms and we have a very, very special guest. We have Danny, who is the lead developer in the KOD project. And we're going to talk about his origin story and a bit about how he creates through technology. Danny, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me outstanding you know when i was younger i didn't realize that there were many facets to creativity when i was young i thought that you had to be an author or a painter or a dancer to be creative but the older i got i got into cybersecurity at a young age i realized that you could have just as much creativity and technology and you are definitely living proof of that if for everyone out there that hasn't heard your story how did you get into technology and development and what is your origin story yeah, that's a good point you made. Like being able to write code, I always thought that uh, it was more math based and it is heavy in logic, but it's also really creative in how you use logic to build stuff. So my background is it was a not a traditional route. I didn't go to a four year school and got my degree. I took a class in college and I always remembered like, it was like programming 101. Always remembered enjoying that class, but due to personal reasons, I dropped out of college. Um, and then I started working and I made uh, dentures. So I was a dental technician and I would make this, the dentures. I was a finisher. So you would, my, I was at the last step where I would polish and uh, add anatomy and make it look natural in a, in a oh, person's wow. mouth. But so it paid pretty well for uh, not having a college degree, but I was allergic to chemicals. So my hands were drying out and cracking and bleeding all the time. And I just knew that I could, this wasn't sustainable. And I heard about a coding boot camp, So I looked into that. I, it was hard to make the decision to do it because it was a six month program. I would have to uh, quit my job and just focus on that full time, not having any stream of income. And I thought, and the more I thought about it, the more afraid I got. So I just said, I'm not, I'm just going to do it. And that, and just live with the consequences, essentially. So I cashed out my 401k from uh, being a dental technician and uh, drove my car to um, San Diego where I attended a dev boot camp. And even when I drove down there, I didn't have a place to stay. I was like going to live out of my car for a little bit. But Get luckily, <laughs> yeah, I told my teacher, and he, 
he was shocked. He, he still to, to this day, he still tells people about like what I did. <laughs> but, uh, that day when I got to class, I met everybody, uh, they started our first coding exercise. I looked up online, I looked up on Craigslist and found like a, an SRO single room occupancy. It's kind of like dorm rooms, but for adults, essentially for, for like a couple hundred dollars a month. So that's, that's how I found a place, but I was ready to live in my car for a little bit there. <laughs> Jeez. So, so walk, walk us through that experience. Like you're, you're living in your car, you know, you're, you're basically doubling down on yourself. And not only that, you're doing something completely foreign to you. Did you know, did you realize right away that you had a knack for development or was it sort of like a challenge that you had to overcome? I think I kind of had a knack for it. Like uh, when we were, the teachers were teaching us, uh, it kind of came a little bit naturally. It, it was still really, really hard. And I was programming probably at the time for four to five months, like 12 hours a day with like just Sunday, we, we took off really, but we were programming like nonstop, created like lifelong friendship there. We were all there for a reason. We were all took a leap of faith because uh, most of the people there didn't really know another person that graduated from a Cody boot camp and found a job. Everyone's just like hoped it would work out. Right. Uh, and uh, I've made lifelong friends there that I still keep in touch and talk to every day today. Wow. So walk us through graduation and then finding your first gig as a, as a dev. Like, what was that like? Yeah. Uh, so I graduated six years ago now. And uh, after we graduated that, like the last week was the most stressful. I was like, this is, t- this is it. Because during that time we were so focused on learning and uh, coding every day that we kind of like put it off like we'll worry about it when we get there and then a week before graduation we were there like we hope this pays out we pay, right. put all this time money and effort into it we just hope it pays off and the first couple of weeks was really hard because i would send out lots of resumes and um, i would send in my resume and then i would have to input my resume into <laughs> their form so that was huge pain and i'm sure everyone knows about that i, I don't oh, understand yeah. how that's they still have that <laughs> right first couple of weeks was rough and then I was like having a little bit fun myself and that they're going through the third week but then on the fourth week uh, a friend referred me and um, they graduated from the class and uh, we started uh, working at this company called independent that was my first job out of uh, the coding boot camp and wow. there uh, in, in there sorry then there I helped uh, create the a tv application and a mobile app so it, it the company's software is to help uh, the seniors. They're usually in front of their television. So the mobile application I would I built helped let caregivers or family members send uh, messages and picture messages to the TV so they can respond, uh, receive. And there was also health tracking aspects to it where for IoT, it would track their blood pressure. And if it goes over or hit below a certain threshold, it would notify them through the mobile app. Wow. So you felt like you were definitely making a difference when you were doing that. But it seems like when you became a part of the KOD project, you were able to take your skills and build something completely different. Obviously, the the project is very much lore and legend and, and fiction heavy. And obviously, the art is important. But in order for that art and the lore to function as it should, you had to build several different engines for it to work correctly. Tell us a little bit about how you were brought into the project. What was the beginning like for you? Yeah. So funny thing is uh, I was the person who, um, the idea guy in the 
in movies. I'm like, hey, why don't we try doing this? <laughs> so I uh, chatted with uh, Thomas and Richie and Evan, and I'm I was like, do you guys know about NFTs? Like, do you think we? I think we could do it. It doesn't seem that hard. I was really wrong. It was really hard. <laughs> it was so much work, but uh, it's uh, well worth it. It's been an exciting journey for sure. Yeah, after I approached them, we uh, we picked, played around with some ideas. I didn't really see a good shark NFT. So originally, it was supposed to be uh, a 3D collection of uh, sharks. Uh, I don't know if anybody right. has seen the cartoon street sharks from the 80s. Yeah, yeah, of it course. Was, it's it's going to be off of that. It's going to look just like that, but in 3D. But the week that we started, uh, Rogue Shark, which is a pretty big NFT, collection dropped and we're like okay we can't do this i think ours might have would be better but it's hard to say now uh but we just couldn't do like a, the same 3d looking similar looking shark like in a month from from when they dropped right and we had to pivot and uh citrix our artist already had a, a 3d dwarf modeled and he just was generous enough to just let us use it and that's how uh kingdom of doors was uh origin story that's crazy. And, and when it came to the Web3 technology, did you have a lot to learn? Did you learn it on the fly? Did you have a cadre of people that you could lean on? What what was that learning curve look like? Yeah, so this was my first entry into Web3. But um, being when I was working at Independa, uh, back when I first started my career, it was a small tech, uh, tech startup. So anything that needed to be done tech-related, I would be, I would have to learn on the fly. And so I was like trial by fire there and here it's more or less the same. And I just, uh, figured out as I go along and it wasn't as hard as, uh, independent. So <laughs> that, that was nice. Uh, I, w- I was able to lean into my resources that I built over the years, all my connections I'd made and ask them, uh, best practices and how to do certain things. And that's how we. Uh, create the technology for game doors like the minting and the upgrading adding weapons to the doors was uh through that process yeah walk us through the the technicalities of building something like a candy machine how did you add to the feel and the the experience of it because that was one of the things that really stood out to me was the 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 smoothness of every piece of technology that you seem to touch from staking to minting to adding weapons to dwarves and then you have the armory that's going to be coming out here soon so what how does all this stuff come to life like what is your process for building this stuff yeah so for the min, the creating, creating the candy machine uh it was fairly straightforward there's a guide on how to set up a collection but uh to for the white listing part at the time when we uh were minting season one uh, right now, Candy Machine version 2 has the whitelist functionality built in, but I had to uh, fork their code and uh, add that functionality myself. And uh, more or less, just I changed this to see what would happen, changed that to see what would happen. And uh, I would do that until I, I understand the whole code uh, because you don't want to put in any code that you don't understand. And that's how we created the, the whitelisting uh, for the first season. And for the the staking part, it w- we had outside help. Um, I we hired a uh, uh, a Web three developer in Russ and Solana, and we worked together for a couple months 
during season two and three. And uh, they they wrote most of the smart contract and I did most of the front end. My I, I can do full stack, but my specialty is front end. So mm-hmm. uh, I focused on trying to make the process as smooth as possible and as uh, easy as possible. What was a, a story that you could tell from a technical perspective that you were working against? Maybe there was an obstacle and you were just like, I just cannot figure out this one piece. And then you have this eureka moment. Has there been a moment like that for you during this whole journey? Uh, a eureka moment. Yeah, I think the the first time deploying the cannon machine, it took me probably two weeks of like just trying things because uh Solana is pretty new. It came out in 2018. So the, it's not like an established technology. It's not like a bunch of questions. You can just look up and see how people do, does things. So deploying it took me, <laughs> I had the code like working locally, but I couldn't figure out how to deploy it to the dev net. And then like later on to the main net, um, after two weeks of like hitting my head against the keyboard, I finally found out that, that, uh, the cannon machine also has their own private key that mm. I was supposed to use. <laughs> and it was pretty straightforward after that. I just had to <laughs> like, refer to that when I deploy it. Ah, that's awesome. What's one thing that you've been surprised by? Because uh, one thing that I was definitely surprised by, I don't know, I don't even know if you remember this conversation, but I saw that every single person that would come in to say hi in the discord, you would also say hi back. And I was like, Hey, are you, are you checking for bots? And you're like, no, I just want to, people to have a friendly face when they, they come onto the discord. What has been the most surprising about the community of kingdom of doors, uh, from your perspective? Oh man, there's so many surprises. I, I mean, I always knew that NFTs are, uh, international, but, uh, my favorite part is being able to interact with people from all over the world. The craziest thing that I saw was, uh, during season one, uh, we had a lot of people from Myanmar. I think we had one or two uh, members that came in and just invited a bunch of uh, people from Myanmar, their friends. And at the time, we were giving out these uh, copper whitelist tokens, which could be used every season. And it, be- it went up to like a couple hundred dollars. And people, they were super active. And a lot of people from Myanmar uh, won those tokens because uh, they were just so active. Right. And they would sell it on the secondary market and they would message me and say like, Thank you for like creating this and them being able to sell that for a couple hundred dollars is like a month or two months worth of salary for them. And they said that like, it really helped them and their family. And that's like, <laughs> it really touched me. I'm like really glad that I could do that for them, whether wow. intentionally or not. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's super cool. You know, what drives you today? Is it is it the process? Is it going through the trials, trying something new? Or is it seeing when something works? I'm sure there's an, an incredible dopamine reaction when you something that you have built works and uh, works as intended. What keeps you going today to continue to create and build new things? Yeah, it's funny you say that because the, uh, yeah, like our conversation we had when you told me like how smooth the staking was. That was a dopamine rush. I was so glad <laughs> to hear that. <laughs> but yeah, getting the project this far, talking to so many awesome people, um, just wanting to build stuff for them and getting, uh, I mean, yeah, building stuff for everybody, getting the armory out there, the stuff we've been, we've been promising since day one. I just want to see that all the way through. What are you looking forward to the most? What I look forward to the most is 
seeing King of Dwarves, spreading awareness, more people talking about it. Maybe it's a pipe dream, but maybe to the point like Lord of the Rings and King of Dwarves and Game of Thrones can be spoken in the same sentence. Yeah, outstanding. I'm sure there's someone that's listening to this and they're like, you know, I, I've been loving all the creative conversations, but at heart, I'm a technician. I'm a technologist. And hearing your story, they are definitely inspired to pursue those technical and creative endeavors. What is that one piece of advice that you would have for them? Aside from sleeping in your car at a code boot camp, uh, <laughs> what piece of advice would you have for them to pursue their dreams? My advice is to just go for it. It will be hard. And if it was easy, then everyone would do it. It's worth giving it that one shot and you wouldn't have to regret it and wonder what if you did it? If, what if you did or didn't do it? Outstanding, Danny. For the folks out there that want to stay up to date with you, interact with you in the Discord, what are the best ways for people to do that? Uh, you can find me at GM Doey on Discord, at King of Doors Discord. And uh, I'm always active on there. Just pop in and say hi. And and yeah, I'm always my DMs are open. But I will never DM the first. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Thanks again, Danny. Really appreciate it. And we'll see everyone next time. Thank you.